0: Uday, thank you for joining me for the Motivated Life podcast.
1: Hi, Ravi. Nice to see you after a long time.
0: (laughs) You know, just for the listeners out there, Uday and I uh, worked together many years ago, gosh, 12 years ago or so, and he and his team helped me when I was in a role at Microsoft where my job was to figure out the vision for future versions of our product. And I got a chance to travel the world (laughs) with Uday and his team, and really go deep into the consumer mindset and understand how could, how technology can really make their lives better, and get a uh, sense of some of the trends that should drive and did drive how we thought about technology innovation going forward. You know, and I've always appreciated how much of a you know creative thinker Uday was, and and how he was able to help us see beyond just the surface when we were working with uh, customers and meeting with people. And now it's many years later, and I saw some poetry that Uday had written, and I was motivated to go ahead, get the book, and was just inspired reading some of these poems and decided I would, you know, see if he'd be all right to come on to the show. And so I'm super excited to have Uday with us today. You're a man of many talents. And so I figure maybe you can introduce yourself and share with everyone your background, personally and professionally. Who are you? What do you do?
1: I was first trained in industrial design in India uh, at the National Institute of Design, NID, which was started uh, based on a report that Charles and Ray Eames created. Uh, Studied six years there. Then I ran my product design practice in India for 13 years before coming back to graduate school at the Ohio State University, where um, I was introduced to the idea of participatory design by a social scientist, Dr. Liz Sanders, who was then the head of research at Fitch, a design company. Uh, That expanded my curiosity from how to design physical objects and their functionalities and their comfort and the, the semantics to how to understand it's the experience that people want to have in their own life and what, pro- what role does product and technologies and artifacts play in helping them live that experience. And that's where I studied a lot of literature from anthropology, sociology, psychology, and communications, uh, which moved me into design research space. I took up a job at Fitch, worked there for five years as a design researcher, uh, championing participatory design as a team with other members of the team led by Liz. Uh, in uh, In 1999, we spun off from Fitch. Uh, the four key members of the research team, including Liz, started Sonic Rim, uh, both in San Francisco and Columbus. Um, Our our story, our narrative evolved from participatory design to co-creation because participatory design refers so much to the material world. It doesn't have to be that way. Whereas co-creation, the idea of co-creation was more about creating value as uh, first introduced by CK Prahlad, um in Chicago. Uh, so, and through that experience of talking to people, having dialogue, conversations, doing so many research projects, I had an opportunity to go to 45 or plus countries. And now I take account talking to more than 10,000 people in the last 22 years uh, about their dreams and aspirations about life, their realities of life and what it does is it shapes your understanding of life not just about products you want to design or experiences you want to design it also got me curious about how people imagine things imagine their life imagine their future and I came to the conclusion that the future lives in social imagination Hmm. and it's through by influencing the social imagination by participating in it through a wide variety of channels, fiction, technology, Mm -hmm. uh, social discourse, design of artifacts and so on, you begin to shape movies, cartoon strips, all of those, you begin to influence that imagination. And then the social imagination puts pressure on engineers and designers. Uh, to recreate that imagination in the real world, so that's where I am now. Is how do I influence the social imagination? But what happened is I've now lived through three recessions:
0: mm.
1: 2002 dot-com bust, 2008 subprime mortgage a crisis, and now the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and through these ups and downs of life and the suffering that comes with it, as a business in personal life, one begins to think of life in a larger view. Mm one begins to understand that the core skill that a designer needs to acquire to influence social imagination in a constructive way is curiosity, compassion, and creativity. Hmm. And as I was beginning to think about that, one night or one day, I was looking at San Francisco from a hill and a feather passed by me. You must have read that. Mm-hmm. uh poem an untucked feather yep. untucked feather yes and i tried to catch it it flew away and that night at three o'clock i woke up and i wrote a poem gotcha and since that day literally all my poems were written between one and three a.m <laughs> in the middle gotcha. of the night and that's where i became a poet So yeah, that's where so i am now
0: that's where you are now and, and you know you you've said a few things that we're going to loop back to uh, in our conversation You've used the word social quite a bit. You've used co as a prefix several times. And I distinctly remember working with you um, 10, 12 years ago and talking about creativity and innovation, and you would interject and talk about co-creation and co-innovation. And, you, you know, at first I thought, oh, it's just semantics, right? Mm-hmm. But but then realizing, no, there's something else that you are pointing to, mm-hmm. which is having the solution emerge, not just from oneself, oneself, but from the system. That's how Mm -hmm. I heard it. And so I think that's, that's a really interesting thing to think about, not just creativity, but co-creativity, not just what is a solution, but what's a solution that the society can, can, can create together. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to that idea, but first let's talk a little bit about poetry because that's actually what piqued my interest to reach out to you now. Mm -hmm. And so the book is A Window for a Home Without Walls. And mm-hmm. I'm, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the cover here. Let me first just ask you, what was the inspiration for the cover? I found it to be quite fascinating. And maybe you could describe it for people who are listening and then share a bit of your inspiration for the cover and then the book
1: itself. Okay. So one thing is, uh, when I, 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 this was not an intentional act at all. As I said, I kept writing poems in the middle of the night. And when p- pandemic hit, I was stuck at home. My wife told me, you know what? You need to look at all of them together, publish it as a book, do it as a project, and see what's going on in you. Looks like there is something that's going on that I notice in you, in your understanding of life, the world, and your role in it, and you might discover something new. So I pulled them together in a document and uh, gave it a few titles. I was inspired by Jonathan Livingston Siegel. So I had created like six designs and sent it out to 70 people as a way to co-create the imagination of what it is. So one of my friends who's a graphic designer, he's a professor at Arizona State University. He said, oh my God, when I read these poems, unlike any other poem, they're very visual. I see your poems in my head. I can interpret it to my life context And I feel the urge to express it with my design skills. Do you mind if I design this book? So from that day, our dialogue began. Mm. And anything that you see here is through that dialogue. And some of the things that I talked about was we came to the conclusion that a window for a home without walls essentially means you need to frame a purpose and not be confined by walls that we are confronted every day let let liberate yourself by the walls but the window gives you a sense of being centered on a purpose mm. and that is what gives you a sense of home no matter where you are you should feel at home and the home is not what is bound within walls is the relationships and it's the purpose that creates you gives you a sense of home. So when we create talked about that, Mukesh came up with this book. There was a title, author's name, everything um and I said, you know what? I want to be bold here. These poems came out of me. I didn't write them. I don't want my name or the title of the book to be the prominent place. I want the spirit of the window within, uh, uh, you know, Home Without Walls to prevail. So this is like the only book probably in the world that has no text on the front page or on the back page. There is <laughs> right? no... And for-
0: And for people listening, uh, listening, there's, it's a banyan tree, right? Uh, So it's a a banyan tree, which is a, you know, a big tree that has roots that grow from the branches down to the earth. Mm -hmm. Very grounding, (laughs) bothy tree. Also, you can say banyan tree, and there's a window place where you can see the banyan tree through the window. And it's interesting that you, you speak to the purpose, um, you know, window for a home without walls. To me, it spoke to the fact that often in my coaching practice, people come saying, hey, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? As if they have to go find it. To me, what I got from this cover and the title was to be able to look more clearly in the moment and have it be revealed. So instead of having to go seek a purpose, you look in it Finds you, it's there. Like the purpose is there. You just look, look at the window you're in now, and there's meaning through that window. Um, so, I mean, you can contemplate the cover of the book for a while. You've you've said something interesting. I have a few friends who have written books. Every single one have said the process was hard, arduous, backbreaking. What was it like for you to produce this? Cause it sounds like this was not an arduous process for you. I don't know. Maybe I was
1: wrong. It was fun and playful. And it just, I also invited one friend uh, who's an editor. She's a good copywriter. So she helped me clean up my text and she rewrote all the titles. Uh, so it was fun. We were just between the designer, myself and Molly, the uh, editor, We were just playing with each other and we were co-creating it. And really I decided this is not my book. It doesn't carry my name on the type, except on the uh, spine. uh, spine." (laughs) Uh, That's because when you, you need to find it when it's in a book rack. And also, as you can see, the first page, when you turn, you see a Buddha quote. I have always been inspired by Buddha because he resonates, his life resonates with my philosophy, that he is one philosopher who did not have answers. He set out with questions. Mm. And I think in life, it's more important to have the right questions than the right answers, because answers keep changing, evolving. But to keep refining your questions is important. And that's why Buddha is a big part of my book also.
0: In, in reading the book, uh, one of the themes that struck me in many of the poems <laughs> was that they pointed people back within oneself. They pointed people back to inner wisdom, to listening inside versus <laughs> outside. I'm curious for you, where did this insight come that there's some magic to be tuned into the inner
1: world? Uh, there are two things. Number one is life. I've lived life long enough that you suddenly stop looking for answers outside and you find there's a lot inside that. Uh, and, uh, and also, Charles and Ray Eames made a movie called Powers of 10. I don't know if you've seen that, mm-hmm. but it's a very interesting movie of a guy stand, sleeping in the backyard on a mat and the camera goes out to the universe, shows the entire universe Pans back into his body, skin, all to the, the, the universe inside. And both the ends of the universe look the same. And essentially, whether at the micro level, at a macro level, universe has the same form. We are only the bodies in between. So when you want to search, you don't have to walk all the way out. You can walk inside. It's much easier, especially during pandemic. Mm. And you will can learn the same things there. The same thing with a book called Siddharth. I don't know if you read that. Herman uh, Hess. It's not about yes there also he traveled all over to look for his truth and he finally found it from a boatman who all the all his life had only ferried people between the two shores of a river hmm. so essentially you never know where you will find your truth it exists all over you and right now i think when you lived life and when you are in a pandemic it's best to search inside
0: hmm. how has your inner wisdom shaped your work shape your life have there been some defining moments where you've trusted that voice within Um, as you mentioned at the start you've been through three pandemics running a company through uh, three downturns rather Mm. and you've had to navigate that and we're in the third right now Uh Uh, How has listening to your inner wisdom and insight shaped your life how has it shaped the work you do
1: i think two things i have learned is one is And this is something my mother taught me is to be fearless. I think a lot of things we don't see in the world uh, and don't discover and don't act on is because we have fear holding us back. And my mom in very early on taught me to not fear anything. Uh, And I think that's one thing that actually liberates you to see things as they are and not to get too entangled with it. So even bad situation is a part of the cycle in fact i wrote something today you may have read that did you read uh, not not today okay I, I sent it to you it's it's a blog called the uh, reclaiming the language in it in which we cry hmm. and i say in that blog i have said when i looked at all the most authentic moments in my life and i started making a list most authentic moments were the ones where I was crying without inhibitions. And I reconstructed that and I wrote a whole blog around it about how do you live most authentic life? And I think authenticity is where you see a clear picture, whether you're down or up, Mm -hmm. whether you're happy or sad. And in that blog I've written, the pursuit of happiness is such a distorted view of life it, it makes you see successful you as a positive and a failed you as a negative. It looks at like when you're successful, you look at people as successful me and failed they. But actually what pandemic is teaching us is we are all interconnected. And what happens to one affects the other. And you need to take responsibility for embracing all of that and affecting all of that. And that's what has like that's the learning that I'm gaining from this, uh, a dialogue with life and dialogue with people.
0: Mm. Yeah, I don't you know if the, I answered
1: your question. No, no,
0: you did, and and it made me think. Uh, you know those moments where uh, a tear falls—tear of joy, a tear of sadness—something authentic. I think about business mm-hmm. and how then in a business world where you know. Um, most people don't go into meetings wanting to cry, and I'll argue that you know people don't necessarily have to to get get the kind of be be authentic in the way you talk to. How do you take that emotion and then help bring it into a team or a company that's trying to get real about a situation, get real about a problem, get real about the needs of a customer? How do you help bring that authenticity in um, in a way that would work for a business?
1: Uh, I think the first thing to recognize is to be exposed to realities that we are real people with emotions, real people with ups and downs of life and our customers, our clients are real people and you have to be engaged in their life in every moment, not just in happy moments and not just promise utopia. Sometimes what it takes is just to tell them, you need us when you are sad and down, not necessarily to bring you up and cheer you up, but just to know that somebody listens to you, somebody is there with you. Uh, You have to empower people, not necessarily help people. And those are the kind of things that when you bring it down into your company, you have to allow people to disagree with each other. You have to allow people to live with different perspectives. You have to allow people to live with contradictions because through all of that jumble, that is a representation of real life will emerge opportunities for catering to those different Mm -hmm. realities with different types of solutions. Uh, You don't want people to be always successful, celebrate failures, allow, encourage people to take, uh, actions, even if there is a risk of failure, when they fail, tell them that's a part of going, walking the path. That's the path of being a part of the real world. And that's what where I kind of feel this poetry, this realization of, uh, you know, the authentic way of reclaiming the truth. Uh, it matters. And I think a lot of times we tend to celebrate success in an organization, celebrate heroes and put pressure on people to succeed and to become a hero. Mm. Uh, There is no place for humility. There is no place for uh, living with little. There is always a pressure on growth Mm -hmm. rather than, there's no uh, celebration of conservation. There's celebration of consumption. So I think we are kind of in a world where pandemic has taught us that the rules of living have changed and we may have to redefine and extend those rules that we are learning from nature into the ways in which we conduct our business in the future. Mm -hmm. So, um,
0: you know, I'd love for you to talk about, you know, at your core as a design thinker and design activist, as I've heard you write about on your Mm -hmm. blog, maybe speak a little bit to design thinking and why it matters, and then we'll talk about design activism and what that means and the difference. Mm. And, you know, many of our listener, the listeners are you know, working in the world of tech, perhaps engineers, perhaps marketers. A few are designers, but I'm guessing design thinking will be new to many people. Um, we, they may have heard, heard it as a buzzword, but not really understand what it means. And then design activism, as you would describe it, as as an important element as well. Could you speak to those two and why they matter right now?
1: Okay, uh, so there is an origin of design thinking and there is a current prevalence of design thinking. Uh, In the past, when I was in school, design school, 1975, design thinking was termed as designerly ways of knowing and learning and acting on information that resides in our world. There were people like Nigel Cross, uh, uh, Christopher Alexander, who were curious about this, the information in the world that shapes our unique way of thinking creatively, constructively, solving problems, uh, and taking intuitive leap of what's possible. Uh, so to that extent, there was a more a universal uh, curiosity for how anybody, any human can embrace their innate capacity to think constructively and find solutions to problems. As design became a profession, I would give credit to uh, IDEO and Stanford School to formalize the design thinking, structure it, and turn it into... uh, a way of managing innovation beyond the management consulting practices and it it became a business practice. It got branded and it gained first curiosity and now more interest, but still it kind of got skewed from the original curiosity of what it is in its phenomena rather than what it is in its practice. Mm. And it kind of got associated with IDEO or Stanford way of uh, doing innovation. Mm. It appeals to me as a businessman to use design thinking as a way to talk to businesses of how we might be able to help them in a different way. But for me, uh, my curiosity lends itself more to a new, a different language of co-creation of design activism or of designerly way of knowing. Uh, these, are, uh, these are some of the ideas Or now social understanding, social mm. imagination shaping it. These have become more a part of my vernacular that design thinking. Uh, and therefore, but I still at the root of it is my belief that every human being has the ability to transcend their reality and think constructively and imagine a different future. And you need to engage that in getting them to collectively envision that future.
0: Got it. You know, As I hear you talk, uh, for me as a coach, I, I often make the distinction that there's, there's the, what people think they need to do, the verb, the action, which most leaders tend to focus on. What do I do to succeed? What do I do to shift my team to be more high-performing? But often in coaching, it's much more about the adjective versus the verb. It, it's who do they need to be. Mm-hmm. Where are they coming from? What's the attitude? So as mm-hmm. I hear you speak about design thinking being a something that's often used by, say, a strategic consultant, it's a doing. And mm-hmm. I hear you speak to, no, it's an attitude in which you see yeah. the world. It's more a of a mindset. feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely understand that difference there. How can we use design activism to make a difference? Like, are, is there a community you've seen where it's being done well? You you alluded to Scandinavia. Um, or are there or do you see a possibility <laughs> to have more of a co-created solution <laughs> with I'll give you a perfect
1: example now. Now if you see today with the advent of cell phones, with everyone having a cell phone in hand, it is very difficult for people to conduct in a behavior that's illegal or unfair. Take an example, Black Lives Matter. Like police atrocities are being recorded by common citizens uh, and being reported in media because people are now empowered with technology to make this aberration of our society visible. And that creates opinion. That creates protest. That creates an understanding that now this needs to change. So this is more on the social side. Uh, uh, There is an organization called Usha Ushahidi that gave cell phones as a way to monitor election mall practices in African elections. And people began to ca- record booth capturing and stuff like that and started putting it on the website. Suddenly it became a pressure on improving electoral practices. Mm. There are so many other tools being created where people are being empowered to participate with technology tools in the process of co-creating something bigger. Uh, and I think those are the places where people with design and technology mindsets can actually build those tools where people feel empowered to contribute uh, towards aggregation of individual ideas, individual opinions, individual observations into something more impactful.
0: Mm, gotcha. Gotcha. So that's where you draw the distinction <laughs> between, um, and, and in one of your recent essays, the Reimagine the Future article. Mm where you talk about uh, the problem of many designers and tech leaders moving in the direction of speed, growth, profit, um, and consumption versus how can we facilitate more participation, more solutioning, more co-creation. Okay, so that makes sense. Now, I'm curious from a design perspective, who inspires you? Like, who do you feel that um, is pushing a boundary or uh, pointing the profession in a good way
1: you mean as an individual or a could book be an individual
0: or... it could be a uh, could be a company it could be an individual who inspires you from a design design thinking or design activism perspective
1: hmm well there are many people uh, I think uh, a lot of them were books people who wrote books. I would say uh, the first book when I was in design school that inspired me was uh, uh, Design for the Real World by Victor Papanek Hmm. uh, where he uh, pointed out the socially responsible design versus consumerist design. I was inspired by um, uh, uh, Ivan Illich and his book uh, Convivial a uh, tools for conviviality, which was written in nineteen seventies, but it's relevant now more than ever before. Where he talks about we don't, we should not build tools to which we become slaves, but rather we should build tools that empower every individual in the society to lend their energy and their imagination towards mm-hmm. building something that's more purposeful and convivial. And his definition of conviviality. And convivial society is playful sobriety.
0: <laughs> playful sobriety, okay.
1: <clears throat> and that's the essence of design. Um, I was, as an individual, very much influenced by Dr. Liz Sanders. She's a Norwegian teaching at Ohio State University. She brought me into the social sciences realm, and uh, she was my teacher, she was my boss, she was my business partner and now she's gone back to school now. So I would say she had a profound impact on my change of my direction. Um, Hmm. A very interesting book, Understanding Comics, Hmm. uh, by Scott McLeod had a big impact on me because that's where he pointed out that a comic that has minimal detail, very little contour, is easier to relate to than a, than a sketch that has all the detail. Because in a smiley face, you see yourself. In a Superman, you only see a Superman. He also said that strength of comic is in its gutters, not in its frames. So essentially what he's talking about is how do you create something that provokes people's imagination mm, rather see. than gives them the solution. I see. So those are some of the things. And above everyone else, I admire... Buddha for his curiosity and Gandhi for his non-violent uh, vision yes. of building a society of locally relevant tools.
0: Yes. In some ways, design, uh, the epitome of design activism <laughs> yes, <absolutely. laughs> in how Gandhi facilitated the societal change. Yes. You know, uh, you've alluded to something earlier. Um it, and I, I would agree that that you believe all people have creative genius within them, design genius within them, have the potential. So it's not just the the, the wild and crazy, tortured soul of a genius who can unlock something um, mm-hmm. profound from a design perspective, but that we all have such capacity. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, uh, I can tell you one thing. Now you have a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll give you my experience with my baby who's now become an an adult uh, right since childhood we used a technique with her where when there was a situation something as simple as which dress to wear or something more conflicting between mom and dad have a difference of opinion they're angry any of those questions we would involve her in the conversation Hmm. And, And each of us would express our opinions on what's the problem and what's the solution? What are our options? And we would find that that dialogue actually helped create a greater sense of ownership amongst all of us. Even when we were tempted to see what her problem was and had a solution to offer when we involved her, she cared more for this emergent solution than when we said, you don't understand. We've lived a life better. This is what is best for you.
0: Yeah, I, I, I it brings to mind this study, the IKEA effect. You may have heard of it. Um, a study done in one of the business schools around how when people purchase their IKEA furniture and build it, say, for a college dorm room, they, they attach a sense of love and caring to that furniture because they had a stake and they had involved skin it. in the game. Yeah. Um, even if the, and I can attest to this, I still to this day have some Ikea furniture hanging around uh, for years and years that I have an attachment to because I was actually invested in the process.
1: Yes, absolutely. So that's the most important part. That's what it goes back to. Hmm.
0: Um, Let's talk a little bit about leadership. You know, most people who are listening are, are knowledge workers. Many are running teams What can business leaders, and you've spent many, many years facilitating uh, innovative and creative workshops with teams, what can business leaders do to unlock more of their own creativity and innovative potential, and also how can they facilitate more of that with their teams?
1: Honestly, I I would say I'm still struggling with it, so I have not attained uh, the ultimate competency in that area. But the first thing to learn is to tame your ego. Hmm. You, be- you become a better observer and a listener and therefore more e- you are more equipped with wisdom and information if you put away your ego. That's a big part of what leaders should do is that have an open mind to see information that's in front of you and not be tied to your belief. A more recent uh, project that we did, I cannot give you the exact company name and the project name, but a very interesting project. It was for a legacy project, for a legacy product that has been in market since 1965. And they were beginning to wonder what it would mean that brand and that product to the younger generation and they had to change the technology associated with that product, but they felt their legacy customers would be annoyed by change of the technology. We and the rank and file in the organization was bought into the idea of aligning with the younger generation. The the topmost person was had the belief that this is my baby, I've lived so many years with it. This is what our flagship product is. How can you just change this? You're gonna piss off our legacy customers. We were able to take some of these middle-level leaders through a tour of people's imagination worldwide, hear people's stories, the younger people's stories, their values, their understanding of the future. They came back and narrated the stories of what they heard with the senior leader, and they were able to change his belief Uh, through those stories, that if I don't listen to the younger generation, my brand and my product would fade out. Mm -hmm. Whereas it will have a new lease of life to innovate and evolve with the new life as long as I still hold on to the core values of that product. Mm -hmm. And those core values can be manifested in new technology. Mm -hmm. And now that is something that calls for a leader to be open to listening to the voice of their customer of immersing himself or herself in the actual environment in which his product lives mm. her product lives and learn from it
0: mm. yeah and you've used the word story several times it's like understanding the story versus just the punchline. line <laughs> yes. which in business people want to get to the bullet point and you're pointing to what's the context what's the story what's the before and after your technology is used yes um which has the emotive heft to it you've also also spoke to humility the opposite of ego as being a key here you know just in as we wrap up in these final f- few minutes um you've traveled extensively uh i, I you know china <laughs> you've been to china many times i know
1: 48 uh, times
0: Brit- yeah many times i went with you to china <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> once as well <laughs> so uh I'd love to hear from you, what culture do you find, just just right now for whatever reason, what culture do you find particularly fascinating? And to the point where once this pandemic is over, you longed for a return visit, which culture is fascinating that you'd love to visit again when we're able?
1: Okay, so I will change the word from fascinating to curious. Sure. And, and I will tell you why fascinating refers to something that has been achieved and therefore glorious and therefore excites me whereas curious means it's intriguing unresolved and has potential to become something else so I would say the most surprising and intriguing place for me was my visit to Moscow and I was so, I went into Russia and Moscow with the baggage of all the media constructed uh, stories that I was fed all my lifetime, whether I was in India or in the US, different spin in both the places. So I was actually able to feed on different spins on Russia over a different period of time. And I go in there and my project was with young people And I realized they are as human as uh, the youngsters in New York or Rio de Janeiro or London or Indonesia. And what makes it even harder for them is that some of their simple aspirations are hard to meet because of certain conditions. But still, they have created institutions and they've created a way of life where they can have moments of those experiences, a sense of freedom, a sense of creativity that they see at much higher risks mm. and I think that's what is is intriguing exciting, challenging, and like I would also say fascinating to fascinating
0: people. okay okay, wonderful um where do you see yourself in three years uh
1: I, I don't know where I will end up, but I would love to see myself uh, detached from the task of managing cash flow for my business and just being an activist who promotes change through storytelling, discovery, and transforming minds. Mm. And I found poetry to be a, an amazing tool for doing that because people, I'm getting amazing responses to this book. You should see all kinds of people. One student of music is composing a cappella music from my poems. <laughs> and another woman uh, who is a doctor, she's giving it to her, one of her family members who has a psychological condition. And she feels these poems will become her friend from inside. The third person who is a counselor, he's going to give it to one of his friends, his patients, who is, has a fading memory. And he thinks that these poems and this book will become that person's companion and a friend when he loses his memory. So all kinds of people are beginning to interpret this as a tool for healing and hope.
0: And healing and hope are things we could use more of right now in society. Uday, I appreciate you joining me. The book is A Window for a Home Without Walls, A Book of Poems. And how can people connect with you to learn more?
1: Uh, Uday at sonicrim.com or just Google my name. And you'll Google find your,
0: <laughs> gotcha. And sonicrim.com is your company website. It's been wonderful talking with you. Take care.
1: Thank you very much, Ravi. It was fantastic meeting you again. We'll talk again soon.